0: if you would grab your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel is where we're at this morning. Specifically, we're going to be making our way from Mark 14, verses 53 to 65 this morning. And the reason we have you stand for God's Word is God esteems His Word above His very name. And so we stand in honor and in reverence because we believe this is, in fact, God's Word. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Even, yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He remained silent. He made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death, and some began to spit on him to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the reading of his word. Father God, we come to you, a hopeless people in need of grace, a people who do not have life altogether, a people who are not perfect, guilty as charged, yet hopeful. Hopeful, we come to your word, we drink from the wells of living water, would you satisfy our souls this morning so that we would see the good news of the gospel, that we would grow in deeper and richer understanding of your word and Jesus, what you went through on our behalf. We do this for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, aloha, how's it? You guys good? It's good to be with you. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, we are truly humbled and thankful that you would take your Sunday morning to be worshiping Jesus with us. Um, if you don't know Jesus, or if you're kind of exploring Christianity and you took your Sunday to be with us, that's, that's awesome. We're thankful to have you here. We know that this can be an awkward Weird, strange, kind of nerve wracking thing to be in church. But at the end of the day, we are not here to hear about man's wisdom. We are not gathering to build up our own religious a qualification so that we can stand before God awesome one day. We are all here, all of us, as desperate sinners in need of God's grace, and that's why we've gone to the Word, because it's not about what I think or what I say or even about what you think or what you say. At the end of the day, God has spoken and made himself known to us, and that is why with enthusiasm we run to his Word. But before we get in his Word, I just wanted to thank you dads, thank the grandpas, thank the uncles, wanted to thank the spiritual dads even, who, Father's Day is a reminder, you help us, dads, discover more and more the richness of the gospel. And by your example, God has called you dads to be the embodiment of your heavenly father's love, to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ's love for his children. And while society tries to emasculate men, why culturally, men are often portrayed as a joke or stupid or unnecessary. Spiritually, you're under attack on all fronts. Be reminded this morning that you are called by Jesus to lead. Be reminded this morning by Jesus you are called to love. Be reminded by Jesus that you are called to be the embodiment of the gospel. And he is called to no one else except for you to do that. And l- Listen there is nothing insignificant about you being made in the image of God as Father. So happy Father's Day to you, church. Would we celebrate our dads just by putting our hands together? Dads, thank you. Really do, thank you. And I have to say this, if your dad is not around, or your dad was not around, that you did not receive the love that you needed from your earthly father? Your earthly father broke trust with you or maybe he even broke your heart? Be encouraged this morning because God is a good heavenly father and he loves perfectly. He is never changing and God our father will never leave you and he will never forsake you. It's the god that we worship here in mark 14 we are in the last hours of jesus life i mean seriously in the hours before he is to die and we have to understand that that yeah we're taking like months it'll be over a year from the start to finish we'll make our way through the gospel of mark and months going through the the last hours of jesus life but but if you're in the shoes or the slippers, I should probably say, of the disciples, um, things have escalated so quickly. Just hours ago, you were in the upper room with with Jesus and 11 other brothers, really. You're laughing, you're, you're eating, you're breaking bread, you're drinking, you're singing songs. It is awesome. And then kind of out of left field, Jesus, near the end of the meal, takes the bread, gives thanks to his father, takes it, breaks it, and then he says to his disciples, take and eat, this is my body. And then he takes the cup, and he starts talking about a new covenant, a new covenant of the, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, his blood that was shed. And he says something crazy. He says, as often as you do this, as often as you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. And if that wasn't heavy enough, then Jesus says to his 12, who followed him for three years, who've forsaken everything in their life to be with them, oh, oh, by the way, one of you are gonna betray me. The emotional turmoil, the stress, the angst in your soul, is it me? Is it me? Am I going to be the one to betray him? And then you leave. Jesus goes off to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John. They're there in the garden of Gethsemane praying, and he is pleading. And not only did you just hear some awkward things that Jesus said in the upper room about his body being given and his blood being shed. Now Judas comes leading an entourage of a few hundred men, religious elite and political powerhouses to arrest arrest the man you gave up your life for. Your business, your livelihood, everything. And they seize him and they take him away. And everything you put your hope in, everything you gave up, everything you were so sure of is in the hands of a court where Jesus goes on trial. You know, there are fewer experiences in life more gut-wrenching than a trial. The future of the defendant, the verdict of the consequences, the costs that might have to be repaid, the, the punishment that might be impending, the future of someone's life hangs in the balance. I remember doing uh, visits to the prison on the mainland and meeting with, it with an 18-year-old kid who confessed faith in Jesus but was in awaiting the impending judgment and he was being tried for the death penalty. It's a stressful experience. I mean, even in the news, you don't have to look very far recently to see that trials are, in fact, just in the headlines. I mean, you have Bill Cosby with the sexual allegations against him, and now that's gone into mistrial. Then you have the other high-profile or controversial trials with the death and the trial of Philandro Castile, and the verdict there. Now, while these trials are are gut-wrenching and they're life-altering, there is no trial in history as controversial or as as high-profile as the trial that Jesus is going through here. No verdict as important, no punishment as crucial. The future of humanity's sin and the wrath and the judgment of God hang in the balance as we wait to see what is the verdict going to be. Everything is on the line here. Your salvation, the wrath of God. What is God going to do with our sin? And Jesus, here, the defendant, goes on trial. And as he does, we know from verse 50, they all left him. All his disciples, they all left him. And they led Jesus to the high priest, verse 53. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards warming himself at the fire. Now you might be thinking, wait, in verse 50 it just said they all left Jesus, but how is Peter then here following Jesus at a a distance? Is that a contradiction? Is the author a little bit confused? No, the idea, the reality of them all leaving Jesus was that Jesus, that they were with Jesus. They were representatives and ambassadors and disciples of Jesus. Yet in the arrest of Jesus, he tells them to get away actually, to flee for their lives, which Martin Luther refers to them being able to escape a few hundred men, the 11 other disciples to do that, was a miracle in and of itself. But they all left him. So the idea of what that means is that that no one here is going to stand up for Jesus. No one is going to advocate for Jesus. No one would represent him as he is taken off into, into trial. And it's important to know, Jesus needed no representation. No one would stand up and advocate for real justice because in reality, there is one only one righteous man in this whole story in fact there's only one righteous man in the history of humanity all the chief priests the scribes the elders who are here on trial with jesus trying to condemn him they're all sinful they're all evil they are all condemned sinners all the disciples are guilty and they have abandoned jesus so it's ironic in this trial is the only innocent man is the defendant is the one who is on trial And all the guilty criminal sinners are the one placing the innocent man on trial. And their minds are already made up. We've known for a long time throughout Mark's gospel that before this, they wanted this man. Verse verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, saying, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimonies did not agree. So here what you have is these false witnesses who are going up trying to testify against Jesus and their testimony is not agreeing. Now I wonder how much these people got paid by the religious people to betray Jesus. We know Judas got paid 30 shekels of silver and so the cash is flowing here for these false witnesses to come and to go and make a case against Jesus. But what we do know is that before there is a criminal charge made against Jesus, the verdict's already been decided. They want him dead. And they've been scheming this for months. And think about this. They've known they want him dead. They've been scheming against him to have him put to death. They've had months to prepare their testimony against Jesus. Yet, with months of preparation, the most intelligent people on the planet, the intellectual elites, cannot stick a criminal on this guy. You can't. And you wonder how that was going. Like you'd have one witness after another witness after another witness Saying, yeah, I mean, I, I heard him say this and I, I heard him say this. I, I just wonder though, while well, they're just trying to get, s- and none of them are working, by the way, because they're all lying. Even their story wasn't straight. I wonder if like, there's like some people like, is there anyone else? Because all their, their paid people didn't work. Anyone else want to bear witness against Jesus? And maybe, maybe Bartimaeus was like, I'll, I'll, I'll bear witness against Jesus or I'll, I'll be a witness of Jesus. Bartimaeus goes up. He says, you know what? I, I don't know what you're saying about this man. I'm just speculating here. But what I do know is I was blind. But now I see. Maybe you have a leper. You know, there's ten, 10 lepers that were cleansed but one came back and was thankful. It's, it's, it's a parable but Jesus did heal lepers. Maybe, maybe a leper came up and he's like, I had leprosy and I'm standing before you all because this man cleansed me. What if, like, Lazarus walked in? I died. I mean, you would think in that moment, you'd be like, the, the, the chief priest would be like, just get out. You're not helping the cause right now. Just, just get away. This is not going as we had hoped. So what are they trying him on? They're trying him here. One of the main testimonies against Jesus was terroristic threatening, a declaration of war. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Mark 13 where he said not one stone will be left on another. That's what Jesus said. He's predicting it, not calling for it, but he is predicting not one stone will be left on another. But the false witnesses are saying, we heard him say, I will not leave one stone on top of another. Now, if that testimony worked, Jesus would be tried as a criminal because the Romans helped restore and rebuild the temple and to destroy the temple, to make a threat like that, is a declaration of war, punishable crime. But even their witness. Their testimony did not agree on that. So, if witnesses can't agree, which is true then in this court, if you could not have two witnesses agreeing or did not have them saying the same story, did you know? Case closed. But is this case closed? No. So, why not? This case is not about justice, this case is about vengeance. This is a case where men who are religious feel threatened by the sovereign king of the universe. They've gotten comfortable with being the kings of their false pseudo little wannabe kingdoms. And here comes Jesus threatening their livelihood, threatening their kingdom, and so they're trying to get back at him. They like being the judge. They like being in control. They like having money, power, and influence. And Jesus is a threat to those things. And what happens here, what's happening here is you have men who think they're in power trying to play musical chairs with God to see who gets to sit in the seat of judge. And so what is unfolding here is these men are acting like God sitting in the place of judge. These religious people have put Jesus on trial. They wanted to act as judge of, as a God because they think they know it's better than Jesus. Now we can get on these guys, but I can't believe these Pharisees acted like this. I can't believe they had the audacity to think they know more than God, to think they're a better judge than Jesus, that they would actually put Jesus on trial and say, you know what, you're wrong, Jesus. I'm right. Yet you and I are Pharisees. You and I put Jesus on trial because of our sin. It was not just these men that act like God. It's you and I. When you and I act like we are the judge of our own life, we're the ones who put God on trial because of our sin. And did you know that when we act like God, when we make, this, uh, when we make ourselves the judge of our own life, that is when the acts of greatest injustice occur? Need I say Hitler? Any other religious dictator or evil powerhouse, the worst of criminals, the most evil things that have been done. It's when man acts as his own sovereign, his own judge. When man acts like God, the innocent are harmed. That's what's happening here. Jesus, who is innocent, is going to be harmed by those who are guilty. When man acts like God, evil is called right, and righteousness is considered evil. And when man acts like God, lawlessness abounds. See, what's happening in the story is, is so much more than just a trial, it's the suppression of the gloriousness of Jesus Christ at the exaltation of our own selfish, sinful desires. It's what the false witnesses and the religious leaders are doing to Jesus, acting like God. And just so you know, I'm going to be honest, I have to look no further than my own life to realize I make an awful God. Like I'm terrible at being God in my life. I've tried. I've sat in the seat of judgment. I've called my own shots. I thought I knew it was best for my life. And I could point to every single time I did lose a trail of stupidity behind me or hurt people. I have done what the Pharisees have done. Now, the Pharisees have not actually come out and said, yep, I'm trying to be God. I'm acting like God. Nor do you and I openly come out and say, I'm trying to act and be like God. But do we not act like God when we choose to sin? Well, what do you mean? Sin is making a judgment call. That's what sin is. It's making a judgment call. Sin is the decision. Sin is the act of making a decision to do something apart from God. Because I think I know what's better for my life. When I choose to sin, I am rebelling against the true judge, and I am making myself my own judge. And that very sin I commit is what put Jesus on trial here. Because, you know, this is the root of all sin. Conceived from original sin. When I say original sin, I'm talking about the the first sin that was committed by humans on behalf of all humanity, by our first father and mother, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, creation was fractured, and you and I were forever separated from God. Every single human being, not forever, of course, unless of grace, but because of sin, we've been separated from God. And in that original sin that's now been passed down to all of humanity, what did the serpent... Say to Eve in Eden. For going back to original sin and to look at what sin is in its purest form, what did the serpent say? He said, When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like what? God. Hey, Eve, you take of this, you're going to be your own judge. Eve, you partake of this, you are going to know what God knows you are going to be like God, knowing both good and evil. At the core of every sin in our life is the desire to be our own God. That's what sin is. We all are guilty, like the Pharisees, of making our judgment calls, Every person who ever lived is guilty of trying to be their own judge. We are guilty sinners sitting on the throne of our own lives in the place where only God should be. If there's anyone in this story who should be judged, it should not be Jesus, right? It should be the religious should be us who are judged. Yet on behalf of Jesus' own people, here in this story, we see substitution being painted for us. We have Jesus being arrested, which is a picture of our arrest. We've been arrested by sin, yet he switches places with us here, for he who was in bondage would be set free so that we wouldn't have to be. Do you can see what's happening here? Jesus, we are set free. Notice the disciples aren't being judged here, are they? Why? Because Jesus is being judged for them. We are in the shackles and in chains by our own sin, yet here Jesus is in shackles and chains for us so that we would be free. See, while sin is the substitution for us being our own God, God is, Becomes our substitution for our own sin. Let me say that again. Sin is the substitution for being our own God. Yet God here in this story is the substitution for our own sin. That's grace. That's the gospel. That's our salvation. That is the good news. Well, since these witnesses failed, by the way, they were destined to, right? We knew that they were were gonna fail. The only chance left here for this high priest was to hear from the defendant himself. And in the most dramatic trial ever given, the most dramatic testimony ever given by a defendant comes from the lips of Jesus. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst. He's like, enough of this. This testimony thing's not going the way I plan to. So he stands up in the midst and asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest here, he mentioned Son of the Blessed. What does that even mean? What does Son of the Blessed mean? Well, that's coming from Psalms where David writes about the son of the blessed, he is a Messiah. The son of the blessed is a Messiah. He is is an earthly king that is to come for Israel, but he will have a divine special rule. And the Messiah, this Christ, was going to be this very man. And as they understood it, the religious people here, they understood it. The Son of the Blessed was nothing less than a great king with divine rule, but they did not anticipate this great king with divine rule to be God. See, when we hear Christ and Messiah as born-again Christians, we often put our label as Gentiles on top of the thinking, well, they're talking about God. But Christ Messiah did Messiah did not exclusively mean that. They didn't anticipate, though, the Messiah to be God. So Jesus answers the high priest's question, are you the Messiah? Are you saying you're a son of David who is going to sit as an earthly king and ruler with a divine rule from God? And Jesus says, I am. I am the king. And with astonishment... He doesn't stop there, does he? He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven and their minds blown. Because this Son of Man is different than the Son of the Blessed. The Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel writes as a prophet of God that this man is going to come, the Son of Man is going to come from the clouds of heaven speaking from the Shekinah glory of God sent from heaven to come as what? As judge of the evil of the world. Jesus is answering their question. The high priest, so you're saying you're the Christ? Yeah. Yeah. And not only am I the Christ, I am God. I am judge. I am the one Daniel 7 spoke of. I am going to come from the Shekinah glory of God, and I am going to make all the wrongs right. I'm going to turn this world upside down, and I'm going to bring in a hand of justice. Jesus is God. He is king. High priest, you think you're judge. You think you're awesome. You think you sit on the throne and the judge, and you rule your own life. I'm the king of kings. And what does the high priest do? He loses his mind. He tears his robe, completely loses it, so much so that you know what they do? They lose their mind so much at this claim. They take a bag, put it over Jesus' head, and begin to punch him and spit at him and say, hey, because you can't see because there's a bag over your head, prophesy whose punch is this, and they'd smack him, punch him across the face, in the chest, pull out his hair to our Jesus. Why did they kill Jesus? Because he was a good man? No. Because he helped a lot of people? No. Because he was a threat to their kingdom? Somewhat, yes, but that's not it. What Jesus is saying here, when he makes this claim, he knows they're scheming for his death, and so he's saying, hey, guess what? You can try to kill me, because I know, he's not saying that, but I'm taking, extending the metaphor, if you will. But you can do whatever you want to me. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God the Father in the place of power and the place of righteousness. So whatever you do to me right now, it's not over. So verse 63, we just see this. They just lose their minds. You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. So he tore his clothes. Why did they kill Jesus? For claiming to be God. Don't let any other religion lie to you from the truth of God's word. They killed Jesus for blasphemy. Now, was he blaspheming? No, his testimony is true. But they did not want Jesus to be their God. Jesus' defense for anyone who hears Jesus' defense here has to make a decision about who they think Jesus is. The high priest said, who are you? And he declares it. And he asked that question on behalf of all humanity. See, even though Jesus is on trial, <laughs> he de- He divinely switches places here with them and shows them who's really on trial. Who is the real judge? Jesus, under oath, by the way, he allowed himself to go under oath, which that's a whole other thing that we can't get into, but Jesus, under oath, wants us to know, I am the Christ, and I am the Son of God. So we're faced with a decision here. As the high priest asks Jesus, so we must ask ourselves of Jesus, who is he to us? C.S. Lewis wrote geniusly in his book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that book, by the way, recommend it. It's such a good read. And and I want to quote a a portion of this book from you, from his book, Mere Christianity, on this very subject about what we're going to do with Jesus. Jesus. He says this, and I quote: "Am I trying here? To, I am trying here, to prevent anyone from saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say." A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level, I love his humor here, with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, which is what they're doing here, right? Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord, but let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, He has not left that open to us. He has not intended to. And that is his intention here. So in closing, I just want to think about the three options Lewis paints for you and me of what we can do with Jesus. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Either way, There's no neutral with Jesus. You can't be indifferent with him. You either love him or you don't. The scribes have painted him, the the elders, the chief priests have painted him as a madman, a liar, and a lunatic. They had to because of his claims, because they did not believe Jesus to be Lord. So there's only one other option. let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? Is he the one who sits on the throne of your life as judge? Or are you the one who sits on the throne of your own life as judge? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? I pray that Jesus would be your Lord. Father God, You draw a line in the sand. You make your position clear. You sent your Son not as an abstract force, but as a reality. The, the Logos, the, the God in the flesh. And that we would have to do something with this Jesus. And even now, as we are praying, Holy Spirit, would you show us where we sit on our own thrones as judge, where we determine what we think is best for our life? Would you show us the sins that we would not otherwise see had it not been for your Holy Spirit? And may we climb off the seat of being judge. And may you come back to the place of being center in our life. May we confess our sins. May we repent of our evil. And we thank you that you exchange places with us, that you were in bondage that you went on trial so that we would be pardoned and forgiven and free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.